Before we jump into this episode, please allow me to read you a quick trigger warning. We at Queer Pressure Podcast want to give you all a heads up about any content that might make you feel uncomfortable so we can all have a groovy time. The following episode contains mentions of abortion, suicide, sexism, trans-exclusionary, radical feminism, transphobia, homophobia, homophobic language, and we're going to talk a little bit about orgasms, but not in the way you think. If you find any of these topics unsuitable, please feel free to turn off the episode, walk away, and never think of us again. As for the rest of you, we're happy to have you. everybody. I'm Maddie Gray. And this is Katherine Johnson. And you, my friends, are listening to Queer Pressure, the podcast. We are so glad you've decided to join us. For those of you who might be new to the podcast or perhaps you need a refresher, this is a show where we watch queer media as a continued practice of self-love as we get older. Perhaps our organs are shutting down. Perhaps our beauty's fading. And we're left with the thought wondering, did things get better? Did they? Did they? This episode, we are talking about Portrait of a Lady on Fire. That is excellent news. But that being said, good morning. Good morning, Catherine. How are you doing today? I'm awake. You're awake. That's good. Are you drinking anything great today? I am drinking that old standby Franzia Chardonnay in a teacup with some orange juice. Whew, boy, that is a classic. And as always, I am triple fisting with some coffee and some water. Oh, good. I, too, am triple fisting today. Mm. My goodness. Look at us. I've got me. Hold on. Let me just, uh, since this is an audio medium. Rainier. That was me opening. That wasn't a Rainier. That was a Mango White Claw. Anyways, I'm drinking Mango White Claw, a Mango LaCroix, and some old standby coffee. I was going to say put the Mango LaCroix in the Mango White Claw, but it's the same thing. Well, here's the thing. Here's what I did. I mixed um, Kern's Mango Nectar with the Mango White Claw, and it's delicious. It's the golden age of cocktails made from White Claws. (laughs) Sure is. We try to keep things freewheeling at the beginning of these episodes by having me ask a question that somewhat pertains to the subject matter. So I've got a question for you. Oh, okay. I'm a little bit nervous. This is perhaps a bit self-serving, but is there anything at the moment that you have found all-consuming that you're so passionate about you really can't function unless you're watching this specific title? How fucking dare you? (laughs) (laughs) How dare you call me out in this way? Yes, I have. A couple of different things, actually, because I've like... There's a specific one I'm trying to get you to say. I know! It's Attack on Titan. Yes, it's Attack on (laughs) Titan. (laughs) What's gotten you all consumed lately? Attack on Titan. Obviously! I was just looking for an excuse to say how much I love the show Attack on Titan that we started watching a couple weeks ago, but... uh, Anyways, let's let's talk about Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Is is it a TV show? What what is it? It's a movie. It's a movie called Portrait of a Lady on Fire. It came out at the Cannes Film Festival in May 2019. This movie was written and directed by Celine Skiyama, 
who actually won Best Screenplay at the Cannes Film Festival. And they also won the Queer Palm at Cannes. It stars Naomi Marion and Adele Henel. It was nominated for the Independent Spirit Awards, the Critics' Choice Awards, the Golden Globe Awards for the Best Foreign Language Film, and was chosen by the National Board of Review as one of the top five foreign language films of 2019. This movie scored an 8.3 out of 10 on IMDb. It got a 97% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and a 95% on Metacritic, which is really high. So, Catherine, um, what did you think about this movie? I liked it. I loved this movie. I absolutely adored it. I liked it a whole lot. All right. This movie is a historical drama about a female painter in the 18th century uh, in France. She is called out to a private island to paint the betrothal portrait of this obstinate young daughter of a countess without her knowing. And over the course of the process, the painter and the subject fall madly in love. It's very interesting going from like, like we were just watching Love, Simon right before this and then going to this movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where this is very much a French movie versus an American blockbuster where moves very slow. There's very little dialogue, which is something Skiyama uses in a lot of her films, where it's just a lot more about like glances between people, where she really wanted to just tell a story that was about the actual process of falling in love. And it's not very sensationalized. You never squee the way we did Mm -mm. for something like Love, Simon, because This movie's just not that formulaic. Oh, yeah. And then another thing she really wanted to show was uh, women working. And the result is that it's very focused around this woman who is a professional painter. And this isn't her hobby. It's not her side hustle. She's out here making money moves. And I'm watching it like, wow, she's not procrastinating at all. I hashtag can't relate. (laughs) Before we get any further in, let's move on to our favorite segment, What's Problematic? So with every movie or piece of media that we do in this podcast, we try to pick apart the things that are problematic first so that we can set them aside and appreciate the media for what it is. So, Catherine, what's bad about this movie? It's really funny because we just recorded the Harry Potter episode and I felt like it took a half hour to get through the problematic Everything was bad. So (laughs) what is problematic? First and foremost, it's about white women. You could make the argument that we have enough movies about white people. We don't need any more. You could. Yes, absolutely. Also, the movie is tragically queer in that they do not end up together at the end. Spoiler alert. And this next one, I just think is so funny that we even put it on the list. Uh, (laughs) The movie does not appeal to straight cisgender men. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't. Um, As evidenced by my experience sharing this movie with my roommate, who is a white cis straight male. And I mean, like, you and I now doing this for a few episodes live in a fucking vacuum. Yeah. We forget that other people exist. So this is a nice sounding board. Because he would be considered an average viewer based on what advertising metrics believe. Totally. Not by population, nope. but he's what an average viewer's response to this movie would be. But on top of being a cis straight white man, my roommate is also a huge movie buff and a painter, which this whole movie 
really plays up the fact that it's a painter. My question is, who cares? We have so many movies made for men by men. But like, why should every single movie in the world have to appeal to men? There are so many movies made by men for men that I don't give a fuck about. Well, tell our captive listeners how dear Matthew responded. So Matthew was not particularly enthused about this movie. He thought it was too slow. He thought it was real slow on the uptake, which it is. But something that we kept coming back to was he was so confused by the just the long shots, the beautiful long shots that didn't seem to connect for him. And something that I brought up was this is kind of a sexist way at looking at this movie for a man, because this is kind of the way that a female looks at things. And that's not true of every woman. It's a more feminine way of looking at things, I should say. So this is starting to get into some, like, Freudian nonsense. I know you had to talk about this a lot when you were studying theater. Mm-hmm. But there's this theory that the typical hero's journey structure to a story echoes a typical male orgasm. Yeah. So it follows, like, building pressure, building pressure, building pressure, explosion, calm end of movie (laughs) yeah (laughs) where you've always mentioned something like hamlet as a classic example of something with more of of a a feminine structure yeah because it has multiple climaxes and the build is a bit slower yeah it'll go slow 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 something happens and we're still at the beginning (laughs) and then slow 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 it's like plateau Higher plateau. Orgasm. Higher plateau. Slow, slow, climax, slow. climax, climax. Climax, yeah. climax, 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 <laughs> calm, calm, climax, climax. climax. Yeah. <laughs> Where this movie has three endings, so that's three climaxes right there. Sure, yeah. And apparently that whole aspect really rubbed Matt, your roommate, the wrong way when he was watching it. Yeah, and actually, so he didn't end up finishing the movie. He went to bed a little bit early. Yeah, le- leave um, it to a man to I take know, off imagine before that. the end of the climax. <laughs> Finish before the climax is over. But as he was going to bed, he was like, this movie is really making me deal with my own sexism. And I was like, really? And he was like, yeah, I can see why you like it, but I just don't. And that makes me feel sexist and he went to bed and then this morning he texted me and he said i'm sorry i was a dick about that movie i think it deserved a better viewer than me and i'd like to give it a rewatch if you're willing oh not all men are lost causes Mm -mm. i just i thought that was so interesting that he felt like really affronted by this movie it wasn't just like oh this is something a little different and weird but it actually really got to him Mm -hmm. because men are so used to this other structure and i mean we are too well that they that they believe is the only structure a movie should have because that's what movies are because movies historically have been created by men so madison and i were really kind of grasping at straws trying to write this list of the bad the problematic because it's really not a problematic movie the most glaring problem is that you know this is a story about white women that's yeah the most glaring thing but i also don't think it's a mortal sin to make movies about white women right especially because we have so few movies or like even stories from a female perspective about women what are you talking about there were five female directors that were nominated for best director this year at the oscars 
Hmm. See, what I was attempting to do was a bit of cheeky humor because it was, in fact, the opposite of what I said. Yeah, I know. I <laughs> got real mad about it and just growled at you. I'm sorry. That's fine. As for the movie being tragically queer. Yeah. So queer stories, especially ones that happen like historical dramas, they always seem to end in this like super tragic death. That's a trope that's been coined as the barrier queers or barrier gays trope, which thankfully this movie does not, even though, spoiler alert, they do not end up together. So it is tragic. It's just not as tragic as the trope would suggest. And the argument for the ending could be that they were trying to be historically accurate. But this movie reminded me a lot of the Korean movie, The Handmaiden. Mm. And I've seen a lot of other people also draw a comparison between the two movies. But at the end of The Handmaiden, those two do run off together. So with that as an example, you don't necessarily have to follow historical conventions. And then our last point that this doesn't appeal to straight cisgender men. But uh, who who gives a shrinky dink? Yeah, you don't have to have every movie catered to you. You've had every movie catered to you forever. Here's an idea. Let's not cater any more movies to straight white men forever. Oh, they'll have a problem with that, I assure you. There are a lot of other types of people besides straight cisgender white men. Why should they have all the movies? Mm-hmm. There are gay men. There are black men. There are gay black men. There are women. There, there are, are women. There are women of color. There are queer women there are women transgender women yeah transgender men so many different types of people out there and for so long so all movies have been geared to one type of person i would like to define these two terms before we move on because this movie deals heavily in the female gaze which is a huge departure from what we're used to seeing in movies via the male gaze. What is the male gaze? The male gaze in feminist theory is the act of depicting women and the world in the visual arts and in literature and in media from a masculine heterosexual perspective that presents and represents women as sexual objects for the pleasure of the male viewer. Now, in contrast, the female gaze is a feminist film theoretical term representing the gaze of the female viewer. It is a response to the theory of the male gaze, which represents not only the gaze of a heterosexual male viewer, but also the gaze of the male character and the male creator of the film. So the big daddy of the male gaze, who people usually point out, is Alfred Hitchcock. Any Alfred Hitchcock movie is basically a TED talk in the male gaze with all of his shots staring at his icy blondes and watching them. And the idea of the male gaze is that this person is an object. Mm -hmm. And they talk about this concept rather explicitly in the movie when Marianne is painting Heloise. Heloise talks about the transition from feeling like she is an object to then feeling like she's a subject. Yes. And we keep talking about the female gaze like it's a thing, and this is not a thing yet. When I was in film school, I never even thought the term female gaze, never even thought to think of the opposite of the male gaze. Right. Whereas the male gaze has been around since men have had eyeballs. That's why it's a theoretical term in response to the male gaze, because like this is not a thing that has been depicted enough for anybody to actually call it a thing. (laughs) I was watching this interview 
with Skiyama about the movie and I couldn't even finish the entire interview because it just got so cringy because mm. the interviewer was just kind of a dick. Oh no. He got talking about the female gaze with her and Skiyama just kept adamantly putting her foot down and saying no this is not a theory yet this is not a thing yet we can't talk about it like it's a theory it should maybe but like it doesn't and she was saying just because we're talking about this because it's in my movie doesn't mean it's some wide concept yet that people are talking about it just has not been practiced enough yet to be an actual concept that we can all talk about yeah because of the massive saturation of Movies with the male gaze, where there's just thousands of millions of those to this one French lesbian movie. Mm -hmm. And he just kept at her and kept being like, really? Even still? Even today? Even now? With everything we've done, you're saying there still isn't a female gaze? And she clapped back at him like, I had to wait until Wonder Woman to see a female superhero. And when I came out of that movie, I just felt in invincible and pumped up like I could do anything but everyone all women had to wait till 2017 to have that yeah so you really can't tell us that there's a female gaze yet that we've there's just so much more work to do it's not fixed yet so yes even now we don't have that yet because in in most men's minds the fact that we do have wonder woman means we've done it we fixed the problem we did it we did the lady thing Equality's here. Equal. Equality's here. But if this movie does represent what the female gaze should be, what it's going to be once we have enough of it, what then is the female gaze, do you think? Something that this movie really deals with is like the difference between being the object and being the subject. And I think that that's where that comes in. Um, The male gaze definitely objectifies women, women, turns them into objects for male pleasure, whereas... If, if we're talking about the theoretical female gaze, it's turning people, it doesn't even have to be a woman, but this happens to be a lesbianic movie. I um, hate that word. <laughs> then I'm going to use it every chance no. I get. If you use the word lesbianic again, I will join a convent. This happens to be a lesbian film, so the subject is another woman, but... It's the way you interact with the thing that you're observing, right? As opposed to separating yourself emotionally from that thing and turning it into something that is without life behind it, as opposed to what this movie does in the first painting that Marianne does. Heloise is very much an object because she's something that she's had to observe from afar and she is creating this painting out of memory which doesn't have any life behind it right Mm -hmm. whereas when Heloise actually sits for it she's having to observe her in real time and notice every little thing about her and there's this scene in the movie where both of these women um, start pointing out things about the other one where it's not just visual things. It's you touch your forehead when you're when you don't know what to say or you bite your lip when you're nervous. It, they're they're learning real human things about each other as opposed to objectifying the other person and just turning them into something that doesn't have life. Something that this movie really has going for it because a lot of the other things we watch, we mention, you know, it's a gay movie, but it was directed by like a straight man or something. But this movie was 
written and directed by a lesbian. Mm-hmm. One of the things about this movie that struck me was the first time we see the character Heloise. And in this moment, she is sprinting at a cliff. And we assume mm-hmm. it's so she can throw herself off of it because that's what her sister did. Yeah, there's Jesus. a lot of fear in this movie that at any moment Heloise is going to go throw herself off a cliff. It's a very common thread throughout the film. She's on the cliff! Or like, <laughs> there's a moment where Marianne is like, you can let her go on a walk by herself. And her mom's like, mm, no, she's going to jump off the cliff. She'll throw herself <laughs> off a cliff. And then like 20 seconds later, she's sprinting towards this cliff. And we're like, oh shit, she's going to throw herself off the cliff. Like there's, there's a part where they like get in an argument and like Marianne immediately goes to the cliff to go see if she jumped off of it. <laughs> it's like this poor girl has said nothing to make us think she would jump off the cliff. It's just that her sister did. <laughs> but like, what are the chances that they would both throw themselves from cliffs? Yeah. Anyways, in this scene, she stops just short of the cliff and she stops and she turns around and then Madison, you immediately were like, she's so pretty. Like the second she turned around, not that she was sexy or hot, even though we knew this was like a romance movie and that this would be the, the other half of this pairing. It was just very focused on her beauty in that shot. Like, I can't really put my finger on it of what's so captivating with the, the mise-en-scene of this moment that you're you're just encapsulated by how pretty she is rather than, than hot sex appeal, something like that. Yeah. I mean, part of it is, like, literally she's mostly covered up and all you're seeing is her face. But the way they light her throughout this movie... Is just it's it's no, not even close to sexual. It's just stunning. Yeah, this movie is surprisingly not sexual. They have sex. We see a boob. We do see two boobs. But compared to other lesbian films, like like most notably, blue is the warmest color is mostly very critically acclaimed. But everyone can agree that the sex scenes are just bonkers. But there's always this huge fascination with lesbian sex in these movies, in the real world too, but in especially lesbian movies. More often than not, these sex scenes just go so wrong. So off the rails, yeah. People just can't wrap their heads around it. So much time is dedicated in uh, Blue is the Warmest Color to these two having sex, and the scenes are just so weird. And it's like, she's... She's not a, a pottery wheel. Like, why, don't treat her like a, a tool. Whereas this movie is so focused on the romance of it all as opposed to the sexuality of it. They have sex, but you don't see it. But in that scene right before they do Bone for the first time, there's it's it, it's one of the most beautiful scenes of the whole movie, I think. Um, and the movie, I should say, is beautiful from start to finish. Every shot is like a fucking painting. But it's in that moment where... They're just gently touching one another. Like, she's Heloise is gently touching Marianne's neck. And she's saying, like, do all lovers feel like they're inventing something new? I love that line. It's so much more about, like, the beauty of what romance is as opposed to, like, let's get down to business. You defeat the Huns. Hey, Catherine. Qua. It's time for the second White Claw. My favorite time of day. Second White Claw. <laughs> okay, go on. To talk a wee bit more about the female gaze, for me, some of the more tangible moments in the movie that I could point out, there are just a lot of looks in this movie. A lot of the time in the movie is just spent with these two looking at each other 
which given it's a movie about painting, obviously, but Heloise is also looking back at her a lot. And it's clear from the very beginning when they very first meet each other. So right after Heloise pretends like she's going to jump off that cliff, Marianne looks over at Heloise to try to like see her face for the very first time. And Heloise looks right back and the focus shifts and you see like these two looks mean so different of things where Marianne is looking one for her painting, her portrait, but also because this is the first time she's seen this person. Whereas when Heloise looks at her, there's so much suspicion. And I just think that this movie is so well acted because it's so focused on these looks. I don't even think it was just suspiciously because like towards the beginning when Marianne finishes the first version of the painting and the mom's like, ooh, can I see it? And Marianne's like, no, I want to show Heloise the picture first. I want to tell her the truth first before I show it to you. And the mom's like, oh, that makes sense. She's very fond of you. And Marianne's like, how do you know that? And the mom says, because Heloise talks about you all the time. And this is like very early in the movie before there's any real blatant romantic tension going on. So she has a lot of attraction towards Marianne from the very beginning. Yeah. And there's a scene where... So Heloise doesn't seem very pious, even though she's just come back from being at a convent. And Heloise explained it as it was somewhere she could be that had a full library and she could hear music every day. Mm-hmm. So Marianne starts playing some Vivaldi music for her on this like piano harpsichord yeah. thing. And the whole time, Marianne's just staring at Heloise as she's playing. And the first time I was watching it, I got really annoyed because I was like, look at what, look at the keys. Look at what you're doing. That's why you're getting all these notes wrong is because you won't look at the fucking keys. But it's because the two of them are looking at each other because they're just obsessed with looking at each other. Yeah. And it makes me want to say that even though this is still an esoteric concept... But with this as an example, you could kind of plainly say that the difference between the male gaze and the female gaze is that usually the male gaze is voyeuristically watching somebody without their consent, where the female gaze is two people consensually looking at each other. Mm. I think there's probably a lot more to it than that, but that feels kind of like the basic essence of this idea, which I think really represents how women kind of deal with each other. Mm-hmm. So Madison, should you and I explain why it's called Lady of a Portrait on... Excuse me, why? Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Yes, perhaps. So my favorite screenwriting book is called uh, Save the Cat, and it defines this part of the movie we're going to talk about. It calls it the fun and games portion of the movie. <laughs> it's pretty much the second act, and if you watch a trailer for a movie... All of, most of what you see in a trailer comes from this section of the movie, the fun and games section of the movie. So the fun and games of Portrait of a Lady on Fire consists of a black magic back alley abortion side plot. Yeah, damn. Girl gang, girl group, girl power, witchcraft. Yes. Sophie, the maid, has not had her monthly in three months. So now suddenly that the lady of the house, Heloise's mom, leaves and all of the normal classism that exists between these three girls just disappears. And they kind of just have this awesome slumber party for five days. But they do this string of kind of ludicrous things to cause a miscarriage in Sophie. Because Sophie um, establishes she doesn't want children. So they go to this bonfire where they meet an old witch who tells Sophie that she's still pregnant, that their machinations have not succeeded. 
and, and to define these machinations, <laughs> she she runs back and forth on a beach for like hours between Heloise and Marianne. It's very cute. Girl gang, great. And then they go looking for dandelions and they make this dandelion tea. She drinks it and then Sophie like hangs from the ceiling. And then they're shocked that this doesn't work. And for a second, I got so mad at them. But then I was like, well, I guess they don't have WebMD. No, absolutely not. It brings all these girls closer. They have this great bonfire with all of these women. There's like no men present, which is so cool. And they all sing a creepy song. And then suddenly Heloise is on fire. And it's in a moment where they're girl gazing at each other. And they're looking at each other so intensely. And it's beautiful. But... They're so obsessed with staring at each other that Heloise catches on fire. And she doesn't even realize it. Until somebody else knocks her over. To put her out the fire. And something very interesting about this movie is that there is no soundtrack. So some of the only music we hear is in this scene when all the women are doing this acapella thing together. Which was so cool because it was like the very first thing that like you hear just this creepy sound in the background and not realizing that it's human people's voices and Catherine was like what is that creepy sound and then all of a sudden it like morphs because you see all of these women singing it and it turns into a real song it's very beautiful because that scene was reminding me of the movie the witch mm-hmm. a little bit and i told you about that in that scene and all the women are like and it it was just so creepy and i was like this is about to take a weird fucking turn like the witch did they're about to stab a baby and fly in the air naked but alas no but they did get her that abortion yeah so they go back to this woman's house i I doubt she's actually a witch in the story she's just a woman who practices medicine so we obviously consider her to be a witch (laughs) but they go to this woman and she has sophie lie on her back and they you know administer the abortion and then later that night Heloise tries to recreate that moment of like Sophie lying back on the bed to have uh, Marianne draw it and make art from it and it cements this very cool girl group dynamic of making art together making art out of trauma which was so cool something super forbidden and something that resonated with me was this thing I was reading in an article There has historically been a lot of erasure of women in general, but lesbians especially, because people just thought they didn't exist because you can't have sex without a penis. So therefore, lesbianism can't exist. No, they're just good friends. And so much (laughs) of recorded history is just what the men went off to go do during these times. And so this implies that whatever the women were doing back at home isn't interesting enough to have put on written record. And that's exactly what this movie is about, because you see men at the very beginning and you see men at the very end, but there's a solid two hours where you don't see a single man. Yeah. So the movie is entirely about what the women are doing when they've been left behind at home. And it's that they're making art and they're supporting each other and two of them are- And falling in love. Falling in love, yeah. I heard you. You were about to say fucking. No, I was about to say falling in love. (laughs) Okay, good. (laughs) You know what we haven't actually mentioned yet? Quoi? That Celine Sciamma and Adele Hanel used to date. They did used to date. That's the director and uh, the actress who plays Heloise. And they broke up right before they made this movie. Yeah, something I really loved about this movie was the way that the camera really adores Heloise. Oh, yeah. And it captures 
her very essence in the way that it films her. Even though the character herself, she's so guarded and so mysterious and so secretive. But through the acting and through the camera work, you get to see like inside her soul. So when I read that Adele Hanel and the director Celine Sciamma had just ended a years long relationship before starting filming. When you say years long, that sounds like it was one year, but it was many years that they dated. No, I'm many years long relationship. But that hyper focus that speaks to the romance of this plot became so much more meaningful for me. It really translates and it shows the power of what happens when you give the authority to a lesbian woman to tell a story about lesbian women. I still don't have a huge problem with straight people making these movies just because there are so few of the movies that we we have to compromise on that to get a lot of these movies but it really really shows the benefits of having a director who really understands the content of the movie yeah it's so important like i don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with having a straight creator making a gay story that's not a wrong thing to do but there's so much more meaning and so much more oomph behind a story where the creator understands the source material but it's only wrong because there are so few lesbians making movies there are so few people of color making movies so speaking of lesbians uh this is the part of the podcast where i get riled up Uh uh-oh so far in every episode there comes a point in my research where i just get so riled up that i get angry and i can't go to bed (laughs) because this is the first lesbian movie we've done my research kind of went into like what is a lesbian movie and that got me deep into some feminist stuff yeah we've talked on this podcast before that queer theory as an actual academic school of thought because of all the erasure that happened in world war ii queer theory is now a very recent uh, theory yeah with one of the very early seminal texts to do with queer theory epistemology of the closet coming out in It was either 90 or 91, where first wave feminism dates back to like 1850. So there's been a lot more academic work done in the field of feminism. There's more schools of thought and theories and the way they analyze things. And apparently this was mostly second wave feminism has tried to claim lesbian media as part of feminist theory. So now there's this debate about what does lesbian film fall under? Who gets to claim it? Is it feminist theory or queer theory? And I got so riled up, like kicking my desk, angrily eating mac and cheese. Why? Because you think it belongs in feminist theory? No. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I was poking fun. That was a fair question, but you knew the answer. I know. Just before we move on, I'd like to define queer theory because it's something we talk a lot about, but it's not something that we've ever really clearly defined because this is a field of study that is new and undefined, really. So according to the Googles, queer theory is a field of critical theory that emerged in the early 1990s out of the fields of queer studies and women's studies. Queer theory includes both queer readings of texts and the theorization of queerness itself. So it seems like maybe uh, lesbianism belongs to queer theory. And and part of me is like, you know, why does somebody have to claim it? Why can't just anybody talk about it? But like the point that feminism is making is that like feminism is older. They were making these arguments in like the 70s and 80s, which predates queer theory. And their argument is that two women loving each other 
is peak feminism. But feminism proceeded to go hog wild problematic. Yeah, especially second wave. And third wave. We're technically fourth wave. Oh, that's right. If even. If even we're not just post-feminist. Which then got me thinking a lot about my own identity because my whole life I've been such a staunch feminist and so proud to be a feminist. And then now, as I'm just learning more stuff, I'm kind of falling out of love with it and feel like I need something new besides calling myself a feminist. I mean, yeah, I mean, intersectional feminism is something that maybe needs a new word. It's so different that it might need another word that's not associated with feminism. And granted, the feminist movement, these women historically have worked really, really, really hard for our benefit. But there are a lot of cracks in the narrative that everyone just wants to gloss over when it comes to historically what feminism has done. Like, for example, the feminists sacrifice getting uh, black women's right to vote just so white women were allowed to vote because they considered black women expendable and white women to be more important than them. There's just a lot of little things like that. Mm -hmm. And second wave feminism and a bit of third wave feminism have this history of turfdom. Oh boy, does it. And this idea that lesbianism belongs to feminism, that line of thinking comes from the same place that has led to the trans-exclusionary practices of feminism. Those are people who believe in feminism but don't believe in the rights of, you know, trans women. Right. And what it really boils down to is that they believe that there is something sacredly divine about a biological woman, which is something I absolutely do not believe. No. Which I did used to believe, but now I just really feel like femininity has so little to do with the genitalia you were born with. I'm going to just start dropping a bunch of quotes on you from stuff I was reading last night that got me all riled up. So Jackie Stacy in 1994 was writing about this the specialness of a female-female relationship, and she described it as uh, a fascination with an idealized other, which could not be reduced to male desire or female identification within the available psychoanalytic dichotomies, but rather necessitates a rethinking of the specificities of forms of female attachment. So this was her trying to explain that there's something inherently lesbian about intense female relationships, but she was, she was specifically talking about women watching other women on film. And so they're saying these intense female relationships then make us all somewhat lesbian because of these these great female friendships which pisses me the fuck off yeah that may did you hear me inhale deeply (laughs) yeah i don't know i was just like kind of battling with the conflict in my head of you know i want so badly for two men in a story who have a profound relationship to be gay But it also makes me so mad when somebody else assumes that two women with a profound relationship are gay. And I'm trying to, like, place that because I I don't know what to do with those feelings. Let me help. Thank you. So let me give you some more hot takes of what feminism has said lesbianism actually is. So Adrian Rich wrote, The primary intensity between and among women including the sharing of rich inner life, the bonding against male tyranny, the giving and receiving of practical and political support. (laughs) So that's her explaining more about how 
similar lesbianism is to just being a feminist and blurring the lines there because she's trying to show these overlapping concepts of these two women working together against male tyranny, which could, you know, be any two feminists. Yeah. But I, I would never define a lesbian relationship as two women fighting against male tyranny. I think I think that aspect has absolutely nothing to do with maleness. Absolutely not. To put it plainly, a lesbian relationship is two women who have romantic interests in each other. Ooh, this is making me mad. <laughs> yeah, you see now? Because you were like, really? You got mad? And I was like, yeah, I got really, really mad. No, and now, now you see. here for this this quote drop okay this is the part that's crazy okay give it to me this is the part that's buck wild so there was this new term created i believe it was created in the 70s and the new term was a political lesbian and a lot of these feminists identified as political lesbians and they were making the point that lesbians are so great because they are the ultimate fuck you to men but I personally don't identify as a lesbian because I'm trying to say fuck you to men. And I think that's the part that they're not getting, that it has nothing to do with men. But a lot of these straight women decided to call themselves political lesbians, saying that they would no longer have sex with men. And therefore that made them lesbians. <laughs> Sounds like maybe you are already bisexual and you're just... No, I mean, no? they didn't necessarily fuck oh. women. They just didn't fuck men anymore. They just, like, idolized this idea. And they called themselves lesbians? They didn't necessarily fuck women. <sighs> they might have, like, experimented or something. I could read you a list. I won't, but I, I could read you a list of people who, to this day, still consider themselves political lesbians. But they thought that that was okay. It was just such a weird warping of something that's a very fundamental thing. And I'm not saying that this is current feminism, but this is in the history of feminism that they yeah. maybe even like fetishize lesbians as much as like straight cisgender men do. Where men fetishize lesbians in a sexual way, it's like these women are fetishizing lesbians in like, like an idealistic way. Mm -hmm. But so much of the focus was like, this is peak femininity, so we should all do this. But also all of the focus was just on femmies. Yeah, this is a huge erasure of the existence of butch lesbians and trans lesbians. Exactly. Here is the thing. Queer theory, and particularly lesbianism, doesn't belong to the feminist movement. No. Sure, uh, queerness is something that can and maybe should be referenced by intersectional feminism, but they can't claim it. They can't have it. It's not theirs. Queer theory is now a thing it started to become a thing in the early 90s so when we didn't have a space for what queerness was sure lesbianism or <laughs> lesbianism feminism adopted that and took it for their own but we're in a place now where we can talk about you know homosexuality and trans identities and gender identity as a whole like that now all falls under the umbrella of queer theory even gender falls under the umbrella of queer theory feminism doesn't just get to have queer theory queer theory is separate say there wasn't this whole history i could kind of see their argument right mm -hmm. that being a lesbian means your entire world revolves around women technically technically sure but like i just can't get past everything they've done wrong and we haven't even got to uh, turfdom yet. Mm -hmm. As problematic an entity this is, the show uh, Transparent from Amazon, 
that's probably the most common thing people have seen that has a moment that relates to this. The main character, the mom, who's male to female transgender, her and um, a bunch of the characters go to this like women's festival weekend in the woods, which have been going on for like 60 years. <laughs> Millennia. Come on. There were witches. No, but I, I specifically mean these kinds of festivals that have oh, been around right. since like the 60s, like this this wave of feminism. And a lot of these festivals historically have been trans exclusionary, even like for trans women, they won't let them come because they think that there's just some sacred black magic that comes from someone's gender. Yeah, and it's not... Let me let me be clear. It's not just women who can be TERFs. This is a conversation that I had with a co-worker who's much, much older. Um, he is... He identifies as a feminist. He's upper 50s, early 60s. He recently asked me, because I am the resident feminist, I guess, <laughs> that everyone knows, He, his wife was going to a women's only hot yoga class. And he asked me, and it was a naked hot yoga, which for him, like, he's like, I don't care what she does, but this particular thing makes me uncomfortable. Trans women are welcome. And I was like, Okay, explain to me why that makes you uncomfortable. And he's like, well, you know, if a trans woman, like, still has a penis, I don't know if I want my wife around another penis. And I'm like, you know that, like, not everyone with a penis is a man. You know that. Logically, you know that. Am I going to have to say this, like, once per episode? A penis does not a man make and yeah. pussy hats are stupid because not all women have and pussies. It spurred this conversation about like, you know, I'm I'm not a trans person and I don't like to speak for trans people. But he started asking me like, well, why would a trans person or a trans woman specifically want to keep their genitalia? And I'm like, that's a very personal journey and like you don't get to decide what kind of genitalia women have. Yeah, it's so not your business. Maybe there's financial reasons. Maybe they just decided that they didn't want to. Maybe they've decided that they love their body no matter what. And they, they're they okay with whatever they have. Like, it's it's just not your business. It just do not matter, my dudes. Yeah. And so for these reasons, coming, coming back to the point we went on 20 minutes ago, this is what I was yelling about on Harry Potter. <laughs> if you fuck with one letter, an LGBT, if you fuck with the T, you can't have the L. Sorry, feminism. Yeah. You can't You can't have it. Yeah. That's why feminists don't get to claim lesbians as their own. Man, that really got me worked up. I'm mad now. I told you. I'm getting closer and closer to post-feminism. Like, I used to be such a feminist, but now I'm just like, you bitches are pissing me off. Yeah. I mean, the movement as a whole does have a history of problems. And that's, I don't know, I think that that's okay as long as you know, we learn from those problems and we evolve. There are definitely feminists who won't evolve. There are lesbians who are TERFs. But I think, like, I don't know. For me, I still use the term feminist to describe myself. But I think that what I really... More, than, more often than not, I use the term intersectional feminist because that, to me, feels like we're being more inclusive. And that's what I feel that feminism should be. And I don't know, maybe like, maybe that word has to change. Maybe the word feminism has to change. Yes, I have a better word. Yeah. It's time to leave feminism behind. For what? It's time to embrace 
witchcraft. Ah, yes. Feminism is over party 2020. Uh, We're all witches now. All right. I accept this. Way older than feminism. Way better than feminism. <laughs> Less turfiness. When my friends aren't paying attention to me, I light a black candle and I stare at it and I hope it's ruining their day. <laughs> and also protect trans kids is the slogan yeah, of real. witchcraft. Witchcraft 2020, protect trans youth. So deviating away from this rant I've gone on that's probably alienated most of our listeners, (laughs) um, let's come back to Portrait of a Lady on Fire. We want this to be, you know, an uplifting podcast. So uh, what lessons can we take from this movie to apply to our own lives? I think there's a lot of lessons to learn about this movie. Um, Something that kept coming back to me, especially on the second watching, was how you fall in love with somebody. And something that I've kind of like talked about in therapy, my therapist keeps asking me, have you ever been in love? And I'm like, yeah, I've been in love. I don't... With me. Yeah. With Catherine. When I describe it, she's like, I don't think that's what that is. I think you've experienced infatuation, but like maybe never been in love. But like being in love with somebody is, according to my therapist, I don't know. I don't have any firsthand experience. (laughs) Is like... Seeing them for everything they are and accepting that. Loving and accepting them for everything. And this movie's so much about, like, observing and, like, seeing somebody. Even their armpit hair. Even their armpit hair when you do drugs under your armpit. Jesus. <laughs> I still don't know what that drug was. <laughs> what drug do you put in your armpit? I don't know. I'm going to take a less romantic lesson from the movie. Okay, what's that? I am going to take the lesson to take a lot of pride in my work, in my work ethic, towards my art stuff more. Yeah, that's a good one. I'm really good at putting everything into my actual job and then not really allowing for anything else in my life. So what you're saying is you're going to let Euricity fall off the cliff? I'm going to take the poet's choice. God! That's something they talk about in the movies, taking the lover's choice or the more artistic poet's choice. Tis time for something that you hate. Uh, yeah, sure. This Christmas... Uh, it's that time again. I sent Catherine a chest of nice things. Now, if you know anything about Catherine, you know she hates sentimentality and she hates being told nice things about herself. So as a practice of self-love, I'm forcing Catherine to read one nice thing about her per episode of podcast. It's really good because I have to pee really bad right now so I can just like read it without even thinking about it because I'm just so focused on my bladder. Okay, go. We have so many inside jokes that I couldn't possibly fit them all onto this into this treasure chest, but I hope you know how much I treasure each and every one. It's like we have our own language, really, and we speak it without even meaning to. Well, that is sweet. Aw, cute. Okay, you've, you've made me feel appreciated. We've done it. We've done it. Let's close out. Let's close the till. You, my friend, have been listening to Queer Pressure, the podcast, and our critical exploration of queer media as a continued practice of self-love with Katherine Johnson and Maddie Gray. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review on iTunes. You have no idea how much it helps us out. Like, comment, share, subscribe wherever you heard this. And follow us on Twitter at Queer Pressure PC for podcast, not for Pussycat. Oh my god. Whoa, 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 whoa. Goodbye. Goodbye.